when I, when I brought to you this series in the book of Job, the, the problem of evil and the power of the gospel, it's because we face these kinds of things every day, weekend and, week in and week out, and we all face our own trials as well, our own inexplicable things that come our way, the losses that we suffer, the questions that we have, the hate that we see the fear that it sometimes puts within us. And we often wonder, I'm sure you do, how, how do we respond to such things? Tomorrow's the National Day of Prayer, and that should be one of our prayer points, is that we could so shine as the church of Jesus Christ that hate would just be squashed out by our love. But we do know that the Prince of Peace and the God of Love came to the planet and they even hated him without a cause. So this is going to be our human dilemma until Jesus Christ comes again. But there's been so many tragedies in the world. And we ask, well, what should we do? And, and I bring this up because three friends are going to come to Job. And they're going to try to figure out what to do to help him. And I, I pray that there will be a couple things that happen for us tonight. Number one. If you're trying to be a friend of someone who's going through a tough time, that you would learn some biblical things as to what to do and maybe even what not to do. And to know that we all need grace because we're all, there's no perfect science to try to comfort somebody. And if you're going through your own Job-like trial, if you're going through a difficult time right now, that you would find some comfort tonight and some hope in Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me, Father, as we... We tackle this subject of weeping with those who weep. We want to be people who have your heart. We want to realize that you entered into our pain. And it's not easy to enter into people's pain, but it's something that is uh, really something that reflects the Christian church really for 2,000 years. Trying to find ways to enter into people's pain and ease their suffering as best we can by the grace of God. And Lord, there's many times when we've fallen short personally, corporately, Forgive us for that. Help us to be people who w are willing to step into people's pain, to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Help us tonight, Lord, wherever we are on that spectrum, to learn what you would have for us tonight. Speak by your Holy Spirit. Uh, just allow me to be simply just your vessel, but we want to hear from you tonight. So, May not be the voice of a man, but may it be your voice coming through your word for your glory and for the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is Romans 12, and this is verses 15 and 16. Paul's given us a lot of things, and he's been teaching about the body and about gifts. And he says, uh, 15, rejoice, Romans 12, 15, with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Verse 15 is where I want you to focus. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Much more could be said, but let's flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you something else that relates to the body of Christ and how we are to treat one another. 1 Corinthians 12. Let's pick it up at verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. It says, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, 
all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Let's turn back to the book of Job. Job has gone through a terrible tragedy, as you know. He's really had everything in his life stripped away from him. He's lost his children. He's lost his estate. He's lost many of his servants. He's lost his animals. And at his lowest point, when he is really uh, just hurting, and uh, Satan has now taken, the, taken it directly to Job, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. Let me, let me go after him. God allows it. Job in Job 2.8 is sitting there scraping the boils with a piece of broken pottery, sitting on the ash heap, sitting among the ashes outside the city gates. Uh, really a picture that Jesus painted of hell where there's a continual fire burning, where the trash of the city burns continually, where the worm never dies. There is Job, this, this prosperous, blessed man. Now at the lowest point, he is literally hit rock bottom, or maybe you could say ash bottom. And there he is, sitting among the ashes, and his wife says to him, and this is the one remaining family member, you're hoping that, you know, your wife can give you a word of encouragement, and she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Job 2.9, and then she says famously, curse God and die. Now she, in the midst of her grief, Maybe on a positive note, maybe she was thinking, well, that's the only way that you're going to be relieved of your suffering. Maybe she thought he was going to die anyway. Maybe she thought he had a terminal illness, so maybe that was the best thing that could happen to him. But for her to say curse God is absolutely wrong. And she became a vessel for the enemy because the enemy said that Job will surely curse you to your face if you let me at him. And then his wife came to him and said the very thing that Satan said he would do. She became that tool of the enemy. And we know that ha that happened to Peter in the New Testament when Jesus began to show the apostles that he must go to Jerusalem and he must die and suffer many things. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him and said, No, this will never happen to you, Lord. And Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me. Satan. We know Ananias and Sapphira, when they came to Peter later in the book of Acts, Peter asked the question, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to men, but to God. And so many times in our lives, we can become a tool for the enemy if we're not careful. We can become a tool where we're telling somebody something that's really the opposite of what God would have. But we have to realize also that this family had come to such a low point that it was very difficult to think of anything positive. And maybe you've come to points like that in your life where you've said stuff you've regretted in a, in a moment of difficulty, in a moment where the ashes were all around you, in a moment where you had lost so much, in a moment where you were struggling and angry and in the flesh. And, you know, you can make your list, right? And something came out of your mouth. And it was anything but from God. And that is a terrible place to be as a believer. But it's a place that we probably have all visited. <laughs> and may I suggest maybe more than once. 
And we're all trying to get better, right? We're all trying to be careful with our mouth because our tongue, being this little instrument, it can boast great things, and it's set on fire by hell as James begins to paint the picture of the power of the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. And with it, we do what? We curse men who are made in his image. With, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. And then James says, my brethren, this is not the way things should be. And there's that ought in us, right? This is the way things ought to be. This is the way I ought to act. This is the things I ought to say. <laughs> but I don't always hit the ought. Anybody else out there, right? We, we have these good intentions. We want to walk by the Spirit. But there are times when we let ourselves down and we let others down. Now, we will not hear from Job's wife again for the rest of the book of Job. However... Job does have his fortunes restored to him. Paul and I were talking about this in Job 42 in the very last chapter, and he has uh, children again, and we were asking the question whether or not it was the same wife. And uh, I don't know that we know. But it would, it's a, I think it's a great uh, thought of redemption to think that she also is part of that picture and the whole family or the marriage is redeemed. And marriages can be redeemed even if they sink to lows like that where hard things are said in moments of despair, in moments of difficulty. In loss, marriages can go through times when it's hard to stay together. Um, Christian marriages, of course, have that, that tie that binds, which is the power of the Holy Spirit and God at the center of our relationship. But even with that, in times of difficulty and loss, it can be hard to hang on because you want to blame the other person or that other person is the easiest target in stress and pain and difficulty. And that's where we need the grace of God so desperately. That's where we need friends. And here's what happens. This is verse 11, Job 2. Weep with those who weep. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity, all that he had been through, that had come upon him. They came, each one, from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him, with Job, or console and comfort him. So the three friends. Now these are... Uh, the, the word friend can have a, some various meanings. They could be men that were in some sort of covenant. They could have been leaders of different tribes. But they were in some sort of friendship relationship with Job. And it's clear that they have to travel from some distance. They have to first hear of what was going on with Job, then make an appointment together to visit Job, sacrifice whatever they had responsibility for, and then travel to Job. So time has certainly gone by. And remember, we're talking about ancient times where certainly there wouldn't be news reports about Job's catastrophe or people on social media or emails or whatever. But word would travel through the caravans and people would be telling stories of this greatest man of the East. No one greater than this man. This blameless religious man blessed with much property, a big estate, many children, He's a religious guy, and a catastrophic uh, occurrence has happened to him. 
And I would imagine that in many of the cities surrounding that area, that people were beginning to conjecture about why this happened to Job. If it was in the modern times, it would be all, all the news reports, all the talk shows, and people would be speculating about what happened to Job. Why do you think this came upon him? What do you think he did? What did he do wrong? Even in the New Testament times when uh, Jesus uh, was talking to the man that was born blind, the apostle said, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was what? Born this way. Somebody must have sinned. The Jews even had an idea that if you came out with some sort of birth defect, that maybe you sinned in the womb. And that's why you were born blind, for example. And Jesus said, no, neither him nor his parents sinned. This has happened that the glory of God might be manifest in him. But look, when people go through a difficult time, and imagine, you know, you start counting all the losses, all the calamities, the, the things that happen by, you know, these bandits, and then what we call natural disasters. All these things come upon Job, and people would begin to speculate. Do you think their speculation would be positive or negative? You think they'd be saying, well, it's just a happenstance. Job's a good guy. I, I, I'm sure that this is just terrible luck. Or would people be saying, oh... Job must have done something wrong because none of this stuff would have come on him had he not sinned against God. And by the time the friends opened their mouths, they were doing well until they opened their mouths. And by the way, they don't talk for seven days. But once they start talking, that's when they get in trouble. Now we'll dig that out a little bit more. But here's the image. It's a sad and powerful image. Before us is Job, this great man sitting on the ash heap, out in the city dump, perhaps amidst the fire and the smoke, the burning trash, oozing boils, scraping them. I don't know how long he sat there. I don't know if when the men come to him, he's still there, or if he's now in a house, because as we mentioned much time has to have gone by for them to hear, get organized, and come. But I'll just say this to you. The first thing, if we're going to reach out to people in their adversity, verse 11, friends in adversity, we have to hear about it. I think that's a basic point, but I don't want to assume that for a moment because sometimes people assume that others know more about their adversity than we actually know. Sometimes we find out people are in trouble through the prayer chain. Sometimes a church member will come to us and say, hey, you know, this person's sick or this person's in the hospital. But can I just tell you, for all practical purposes, for us as a church fellowship, please tell somebody if you're in trouble. Because if you don't tell us, there's no way we can know to dispatch help to you. And we have a meals ministry. We have people willing to visit folks in the hospital that do that. But we have to hear about the information. And, and we would like to know, if you have a need, please come to us. If you need to talk to somebody, our doors are open to you as pastors. Please come and see us. We have other people who counsel in this fellowship. But we have to know that you have a need. We have to know that you're in a moment of crisis, that you have some adversity going on where you need some help. And just to encourage you, Everybody needs help at some point in their life. So don't let pride or embarrassment keep you away from getting the help that you need. 
And remember that churches are filled with human beings, and so sometimes churches don't always handle things the best way. We try our best. So just make sure, if you need help, that you get the word out. Number two, if you're a, a person who has a person in a Bible study that you know well, a friend of yours that you know well, you might want to get organized with some other people that know and love that person and set up something to minister to that person. It doesn't have to all fall on you. And some of us, we do that. We hear about something and we feel like we got to fix everything. And we got to be there 24-7. We can't do that, so we got to get organized. we got to be the body of Christ. we got to let people do the ministry to which they feel called and allow other people to get involved. So they got organized. They communicated. They made an appointment. I'll say this as well, and I'm sure some of you can relate to this. If, if I were in the hospital, I would love for people to visit me, but I would love to know that they're coming. Can I get a witness? All right. So, you know, there are times when you're hurting and you're going through something and you would love people to pray for you and you would love people to bring you lasagna or spaghetti and meatballs or whatever it is, right? It's all Italian for me. However, if they made an appointment, then you don't have to come up to the door with your hair sticking in 17 different directions and, you know, you're limping to the door. (laughs) You'll scare people that way. So it would be good to just say to someone, hey, I'd like to bring a meal by to your house. Is 5 o'clock okay? And then find out. So I think there's just some practical things that we can understand, that we can get together with others, we can come up with a game plan, we can be praying for that person, and then we can minister practical ways or practical help to them. How did they hear about his adversity? Well, I think it was big news. His huge losses were big news. I think people were talking about it. I can imagine Job sitting there for several days and people coming by and whispering in the town, paparazzi getting out of chariots, snapping photos of Job with the boils. Job in his misery. Right? Have you ever noticed that these uh, magazines, they love to snap pictures of people at the most inopportune times when your face is all contorted and, you know... That's when they love to get you at your worst moment. They love to kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. Remember that song by Don Henley, right? The bubble-headed bleach blonde comes on at five. She can tell you about the plane crash with a gleam in her eye. It's interesting when people die. Give us dirty laundry. Right? Hey, this is our world. Can you imagine how many people probably were talking about Job in that way? You know, sometimes when someone's talking about us, we get a report about it. But can you imagine being the greatest man of the East and starting to hear all the speculation about your life? Maybe some people talking about what your wife said to you, what's happened to you. People... See, we have an easier time weeping with those who weep than rejoicing with those who rejoice, I would submit to you. Sometimes it's easier to come into someone's pain than to be happy for someone's success. And can you imagine that there were probably a lot of people in town that were jealous of Job? Is that a good assumption? 
He was the greatest man in the East. People are normally jealous of that. And so all these opinions, I'm sure, were forming. And in the next several chapters, even Job's three friends, and some of the language indicates that they were in covenant relationship with him, they begin to speculate about what he must have done wrong to deserve this. So if they did it, how much more people who could have cared less about Job, who just jumped on the misery bandwagon. And so they come. Friends are important to have, but Job will say about these friends that he says, my friends are scoffers. Job sixteen twenty, my eye weeps to God. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24 says, A man of many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Well, these three friends did come, so you have to give them credit. Just coming is a big step. Right? Sometimes it's hard for us just to take that step, just to come. Just to show up is a big step. Sometimes we can assume that other people are showing up when someone's in a tough spot. We can't make that assumption. People tend to run from stuff like that rather than showing up. Amen? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, says James in James 2, 15 and 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. Please hear this. What use is that? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 1 John 3, 16, NIV. So we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And that's what these three friends did. They had to sacrifice weeks of overseeing whatever they had, leaving family behind, and they came to him. They coordinated. Their goal was simple. Their goal was to sympathize with Job and to comfort him in his affliction. I think when we visit people, these are good goals to have. You know somebody who's going through a crisis right now emotionally, spiritually, otherwise. A good goal ahead of time, so you know ahead of time, before you ring the bell, walk through the door, get picked up on that surveillance that's part of the doorbell now, is already know what you're looking to accomplish. Yes, you let the Holy Spirit lead you, but, but if your goal is to bring comfort and encouragement, then have that in mind and say before you ring the bell, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to say? I think we need to pray, Lord, what should I say? How should I say it? And please tell me when to be quiet. Because sometimes we say things that are not helpful because we don't know what else to say. There's a spot in the New Testament when Peter uh, talks about making three tabernacles at the Man of Transfiguration. And it says that Peter said that because he didn't know what to say. Now, I think Peter, what he said was actually good, but the Bible does say he didn't know what to say. And so we have to be careful. But if our goals are going to be sympathy and consolation, we're doing well. Now, who were these three friends that came to Job? The first is Eliphaz the Temanite. He's from a town called Timon. 
It was known as the Southland, a principal site in the northern region of Edom. You can write down Ezekiel 25, 13. Eliphaz's name means God is victorious or God is fine gold, which would be hard for Job to take given what he's going through at the moment. Timon was one of the most important towns of Edom. It was a place known for wisdom. What kind of wisdom, we could ask. Jeremiah 49, 20. Uh, Amos 1, 12. And Obadiah, verse 9. Only one chapter in Obadiah. All talk about the wisdom of this area. And even asking the question, is there any, no longer any wisdom in Timon? The second man that came, the second friend that came to Job is called Bildad the Shuhite. He's the shortest man in the Bible. Bildad the Shuhite. It's got to be pretty short, don't you think? I mean. Now, Bildad, his, the, name of, the meaning of his name is unknown. One commentator says it may mean the son of Bildad or Bilbo. Uh, that's a variant reading from the Lord of the Rings, the son of Bilbo. Anyway, never mind. I... Shua was, is one of Abraham's sons by his wife Keturah, one of a group. Because they were not to inherit the promise through Isaac, the son of promise, they were sent away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And so this man, Bildad, comes from this area. Though he was evidently a rich chief, Bildad is presented like his friends primarily is one of the wise. Hence, no details of his family are given in contrast to Elihu, who we will meet in the book. And the third one is Zophar the Namathite. Nama appears in Genesis 4, one of the daughters of Lamech, uh, one of the, as the daughter of one of Lamech's wives. Uh, Genesis 4.22, a descendant of Cain. Zophar means twittering bird coming from the area probably of northern Arabia. So they're coming from some different directions. They hear about the problem, and they come to Job. And they want to sympathize with him. How do you bring sympathy to a lowly sufferer like Job? What do you say? <laughs> what do you do? Do you drop off a book, some banana bread? <laughs> I mean... What is the best approach when someone's suffering? And what would we want is a good thing to ask when we're suffering. And sometimes the truth is, I don't know if we know what we need in those times. And so, Lord, show me what to say, when to say it, how to say it, when to be quiet. Well, they came to sympathize. The word for sympathy or console, NIV, is a Hebrew word which means to shake the head in sympathy. It's a sign of shared grief. Have you ever been on the freeway and someone cuts off another driver and you witness the whole thing and the other driver screeches on the brakes and barely misses this car and you look at each other and you both just go like this. <laughs> and that feels good because another driver is sympathizing with your plight, right? They're like, yeah, that person is an idiot. <laughs> That's how they drove. Shared grief. Sometimes that's enough. If, if you walked up, let's just imagine that Job is still sitting in the ash heap, but maybe he's in a house, whatever, and you see him. If you just looked at Job and just went. 
At least that would be better than curse God and die. <laughs> right? Sometimes the non, you know, there's more forms of nonverbal communication than there are verbal communication. So sometimes your kids are fighting and you say, say sorry to your brother. And they go, sorry. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Well, I said it. Yeah, you said it with attitude. Sorry. Right? You might as well not have even said it. So this word console doesn't always mean words. It's shared grief. Sometimes we just need someone to agree with us and shake their head with us. Sometimes we just need someone to be compassionate and to cry with us and console us. And maybe the best thing they could do is just cry with us. Maybe there's no words. Maybe it's something like this. I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. I put that in my notes for my own. I've been in ministry for several decades now. I don't always know the best approach when people are going through stuff, but I've entered into a lot of people's pain being in the ministry. Been called out to situations that were very difficult. Loved one just passes away. And I didn't always know what to say, and so I was just praying. And sometimes all I could say is, I am so sorry. And I didn't try to qualify it. I didn't try to quote a Bible verse. I didn't try to, you know, pick the perfect verse and chapter that I could share with them in that moment. Sometimes I just said, I am so sorry. My heart breaks for you. And that's okay. You don't have to have perfect words. What is comfort? We, we did console or sympathize, shaking the head with somebody. What is comfort? Well, how do you impart it? The Hebrew word for comfort is nakam. To comfort involves speaking to the mind and heart of the sufferer in such a way as to change his or her mind and heart. It is an attempt, says this author, to ease the deepest pain caused by tragedy. Where the first example may be more potentially nonverbal, comfort seems to be more verbal. It's to bring a word of comfort in due season. And here's where we need great wisdom, right? Because how do we comfort someone in the right way so that it actually brings comfort and not discomfort to their life? In Genesis 50, 21, when uh, Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, to save many people alive and to bring about this current result. He goes on. He says, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So the Bible says, Genesis 50, 21, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I want you to hold your place in the book of Job and turn to Isaiah. It's a little bit to your right. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a great chapter that introduces God comparing himself to the false gods of the nations to which Israel often looked and found no comfort. This is Isaiah 40. I just want to read verses 1 through 3, where God says to the uh, people through the prophet, O comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare is ended, 
Isaiah 40, verse 2, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. How do you comfort someone? A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth the desert in the desert a highway for our God. That is quoted about the coming Messiah by the one who would prepare the way, John the Baptist. Make smooth in the desert the highway for our God. See, after God says, comfort my people, we get a prophecy about the entrance of the Messiah into the darkness of Israel's pain. See, the, only, the, the best thing that I can do is point people to the ultimate comforter. I can be a source of comfort, but I want to comfort others with the comfort with which I've been comforted by God. So write down for your notes, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5, where we have God described as the God of all comfort. Here's what it says in 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This morning I was at a prayer breakfast for pastors to, uh, back to the book of Job, to try to encourage pastors. And pastors go through seasons where it's very difficult and the ministry can be hard. And a lot of the speakers were saying, don't give up, hang in there. Sometimes we just need someone to tell us we can make it. That God is good. Maybe you could say to somebody, and we, we can't possibly have been through everything that everybody's been through, but maybe you could hear of somebody's adversity and say to somebody, look, I was over there, and I ended up over here, and I'm still walking with the Lord because he comforted me. And it wasn't perfect, and it was messy, and I had lapses of faith, and I had difficulty and struggle, but God has seen me through, and you can make it too. Hold on, and I'm going to hold on to you. This is how we can enter into other people's grief and hurt and encourage them. The ultimate comfort I can give to someone is to lead them to the comforter, the God who comforts us. That's who they need. And if I walk in filled by the Holy Spirit, then I can bring him into that situation and point that person to God. I can't be the answer to people's problems, but I can show them the one who is the answer. And these three friends, verse 12, when they lifted up their eyes back in Job 2, they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him or Job. They raised their voices and wept. Each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. There are people in my life that I know their gait, I know how they walk, I know how they, their posture. And if I saw them from a distance, I would know it's them. But Job has gone through such calamity and such personal pain and even disfiguration by what's happened to him that when the three friends finally arrive into town and they get a glimpse at Job, it's one thing to hear about somebody's problems. It's one thing to hear about a disastrous calamity, maybe, you know, a natural disaster. But when you're there, boots on the ground, and you see the disaster, it's quite another thing. Amen? And they walked, uh, and they, they saw Job, and they just, 
he looked like a different man. You could put it this way. They, they could hardly believe their eyes as to what had happened to this great man. They had remembered him from previous visits when they all got together and talked about what God was doing in their life and how he had blessed them. And maybe they talked business and family. And now this greatest man of the East has been brought to a point where he is just a pitiful sight. And life can do that. In Isaiah 52, when there's a prophecy about the Messiah, it says, just as many, 52, 14 of Isaiah, were astonished. This is uh, a Hebrew word, v'zabam. It's They were appalled, shocked, shattered at you, my people. It says of the Messiah, I believe, on the cross, his appearance was marred. He was so disfigured more than any man. And his form, the form of the Messiah, more than the sons of man. The language here indicates that the Messiah's marring and disfigurement from the whip and the crucifixion so impacted his form that he was marred beyond human likeness. That's the NIV. And in the book of Job, there are little glimpses of the greater Job or the gospel of Jesus the ultimate righteous one who was hated without a cause and suffered though he was innocent. And when they saw him, all they could do was cry. They tore their robes. That's a sign of grief and despair. It's like I'm torn up inside, so i got to show it by an outward sign. And they would tear their robes, and they threw dust in, into the air so that it would fall on their heads. And dust becomes a sign of Genesis 3, back to the dust you will go. From the dust I made you, to the dust you will return. And they threw the dust in the air. And the picture that commentators paint here is that Job is really in the dust of death. Not only has he lost all of his children, but he looks like he is at the very gate of death itself. They threw dust over their heads to the sky One writer says they're identifying themselves with the grief over Job's dead children, probably also with Job himself, who has been grasped by death and is already being dragged down to the realm of the dead, or so it seems. Job is to them like a friend being sucked down by quicksand in the desert. They long to draw him up, but he is beyond their reach. He is as good as dead, close quote. And so they sat down on the ground with him. They entered into his pain. And for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word, would you note this? To him. For they saw that his pain was very great. great. Now, they didn't say, for seven days and seven nights, they didn't say a word to him. But is it possible that they went off and talked by themselves? Is it possible that they had interchanges with themselves, but they didn't speak directly to Job, probably because nobody knew what to say to him? How do you break the ice there? So, uh, how's it going? No, that's the wrong icebreaker. Now, maybe that would have been a time to just say, Job, I am so sorry. Now, let me ask you, think about this with me. It's one thing to not say anything for seven minutes. How about 70 minutes? How about 
seven hours. Now, some of you say, that's me when I sleep. I don't talk for seven hours. Okay. <laughs> but we know when you're awake. Most of you cannot be silent for seven hours. How many of you could be completely silent for seven days and seven nights? Some of you are saying, it's my dream. I've prayed about this, that others around me would be quiet for seven days and seven nights or 40 days and 40 nights. I don't care. Either one would do. But look, after a day goes by and two days go by, doesn't it move from maybe being sensitive to a bit weird and even eerie? I mean, at some point, if I'm Job, I appreciate it. Okay, you guys are going to be quiet for a little while. Cool, understandable, okay. But at some point, if a couple days has gone by and nobody's talking to me, I'm going to be like, somebody say something. And in Job chapter 3, Job is actually going to break the ice himself, and that's for next time. But why did they not say anything to him? Have you ever felt like the odd man out? <laughs> You're like, do I have something on my face that somebody needs to tell me about? Nobody's talking to me. Nobody wants to look at me. Yeah, Job, you got boils from the bottom of your feet to the crown of your head. They just were at a loss. Well, I think we all can relate to this. Lamentations 2, 10, and 11 says, The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground. They are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth. Because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, when little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, Lamentations 2, 10 and 11. Job's suffering was deep. He was grieved physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And they couldn't talk to him. They didn't know what to say to him. Job would say in Job 16, 1, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Thomas Wolfe says, the most tragic, sublime, and beautiful expression of loneliness which I have ever read is in the book of Job. He's the loneliest man I've ever read about. Even with his friends right there, he's the loneliest man I've ever read about. How could anybody say that they related to what he was going through? Now, from the end of Job 2, I'd like to take you to another that I've been reminding you about, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus entered into our pain. One of the things that I like to tell people of why I'm a Christian is simply this. The Bible tells the account of a God who made me in his image. I sinned against him. I was his enemy. And he became one of us. He became human to enter into my pain. Jesus Christ carried my sorrows and griefs to the cross at Calvary. And he bore them there. My sorrow, my shame, my pain, my griefs. The things that maybe nobody else could understand. He understands because he carried them at the cross of Calvary. He bore my burdens there. Because he loves me. 
He entered into my pain. He bore my sorrows. He tasted death for each one of us. And now we have a high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ, our great advocate, whoever lives to intercede for us, and we can come boldly to a throne of what? Grace, that we might receive mercy and help in time of need. And there is no time in your life that you will ever come to the great high priest and he'll say, oh, I don't get it. I don't understand. No, he understands. He understands what it means to be betrayed and to be falsely accused and to be hated without a cause and to be innocent and to be treated as though he were guilty of the worst charge and to have the wrath of God Almighty poured out on him at the cross and to drink that cup for you and for me. And he says, when you are hurting, when you are tempted, you come to me. And I will empathize and sympathize and I will pour out stabilizing grace into your life. Because that's what I do. Come to my throne of grace. And you'll find mercy and help in what? In time of need. Our God is so good. And the book of Job does give us shadows of Jesus who is coming to bear our pain, our shame at the cross. And then to resurrect from the dust of death and show us that there is triumph even in the worst of situations. Father, Thank you for the precious people of living truth. Thank you for our guests who have come tonight to worship you, to hear your word, to learn, to desire to become more like you. There are so many times that I can think of in the New Testament when you entered into people's pain. You entered into a room of a little girl who had died, and you brought her back to life. You touched lepers who had probably not been touched in years, and you healed them. You said, I am willing, be clean. You allowed a woman to touch your robe who had been suffering for 12 years, no answers, out of money. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. We can think of people who just desired to cry on your feet and wipe their tears with their hair, pour costly perfume on your head because they had a sense of the holy. They had a sense that someone greater, the greatest of all, had come into our pain. Those who sat in darkness saw a great light. And thank you that that light is in the life of every person who's a Christian tonight, no matter what they face no matter what difficulties or sorrows come their way. And Lord, we can also be instruments for you to help other people with those times of pain. 